The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. ...is in his son... He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. So let's uh, take a few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this nation in which we live, that we have the freedoms to gather together as believers to study your word. Father, we pray that you would continue to protect this nation, that you would continue to Hinder those who would want to have policies that would put this nation's safety in jeopardy. You would continue to give our president wisdom, give members of Congress wisdom, give those in military authority wisdom in terms of not only protecting this nation, but also executing the war on terrorism. Father, we pray that you would continue to protect and provide for this nation to bless it so that we can continue to send out missionaries that the gospel may continue to go throughout the world to those who need to hear about the love that you have for all mankind is exhibited on the cross where Jesus Christ died as a substitute for our sins. Father, we also pray that you would continue to watch over this nation as we uh, continue to uh, protect the nation Israel and continue to stand alongside her. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we have some important concepts to study, some important and crucial issues to understand. We pray that we may be able to concentrate and focus on these things, that they might encourage us in our own spiritual advance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. And in our opening verse, verse 4, we are going to come to a word and a category, a doctrine, that we mentioned in the first hour, and that is the doctrine of overcoming, the overcoming believer. We saw that in reference to the doctrine of inheritance in the first hour in Revelation chapter 21, verses 7 and 8. Now, those who are listening to this on tape ought to get that 1 Corinthians tape from the first hour on 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 to 11, because that gives a lot of background in some areas to the doctrine of inheritance and the distinction between uh, 
the what winning believers and what failure believers will have uh, during the millennial kingdom. So that is good background, which we don't have time to go into in terms of studying this particular passage. Now, there's a lot of confusion me, over First John chapter five verse four. And in order to understand some things, I want to start off by just reading those two verses together and pointing out a couple of reasons why it is easy to misunderstand or misinterpret these verses. Verse 4 reads, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, if you work backward from verse 5, which is wrong methodology, verse 5 says that the one who overcomes is the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God. Now, if you start there, it's easy to think that what verse 5 is talking about is salvation, that the way you're saved is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, that is true, but Faith in Christ is not something that is restricted to phase one justification. We've covered this several times in the preceding weeks, and we have seen that there was a problem in the uh, church churches that John is addressing that they had problems understanding that Jesus was fully divine. They had they questioned the fact that he was the Son of God. That they questioned his full deity. They questioned his genuine humanity. There were some basic problems in how they understood the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what the Scripture teaches is that Jesus is undiminished deity. He is true God. He is, as the Nicene Creed put it, very God of very God. He is 100% undiminished deity, and he has all of the attributes of deity. He is sovereign. He is perfect justice. He is absolute righteousness. He is infinite love. He is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. Jesus existed throughout all of eternity past, and he did not uh, have a temporal beginning until he assumed humanity at the incarnation. But Jesus never had a beginning. He is without beginning and without end. And he also shares all of the omni-characteristics with God. He is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. He is immutable, and he is veracity. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, you, the issue at salvation is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. But the problem that John is dealing with is a post-salvation problem. He's talking about those who were of us, who were who went out from us but weren't of us. And many people want to take that as meaning, well, us in the general sense of believers. They, they lived in the church. They acted like they were Christians, but they weren't really Christians. That's not what he's talking about. We have gone through this again and again and again. The us refers to the apostles. The principle of hermeneutics is that when you have a pronoun such as we have here, a third person, or excuse me, first person plural pronoun of us, that you have to, if it starts off in the first verse where the we, first person uh, plural we, or first person plural us, if that refers to a certain group of people, that unless there is clear evidence within the text of a shift, then that group that's referred to by the we or the us is the same all the way through. 
That means that the us referred to in that passage, they went out from us, but they weren't of us, means that they went out from the apostolic body, but they weren't really of us. It's not an indication that they weren't saved, but that they began to reject certain fundamental doctrines. It's not that they were not believers in Christ initially and that they weren't still saved, but that they had were now into false teaching, and they were denying certain basic doctrines related to the person of Jesus Christ. That is why in verse 1 of chapter 5, John says, Whoever believes, that is, goes on believing, that Jesus is the Messiah, has been born or regenerated in the past, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So that verse is talking about the fact that the believers who go on believing right doctrine continue in fellowship. This is exactly the kind of thing that he started off with in 1 John chapter 1, verse 2, where he says, The life that was manifested, we've seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us. That which we've seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, fellowship, the enjoyment of fellowship as seen in verse 3, is not based on a lack of sin, but it's based on doctrinal correctness regarding the person of Jesus Christ. That's the issue in verse 2. If you don't believe the testimony of the apostles, John is saying, then you can't have fellowship with us. And our testimony is related to Jesus, who we saw, felt, touched, and we witnessed his whole life. So Christological heresy then leads to a lack of fellowship with the apostles and with God. So fellowship isn't just a matter of not sinning. It also is related to having accurate doctrine related to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at first glance, when you look at 1 John 5, 4 and 5, it looks like he is saying, whoever is born of God, that is, or whatever is born of God, actually, all, actually it says in the Greek, for all who are born from the source of God, that is, all who are genao, born again, it's a perfect uh, passive participle, whoever has been born in the past, with the result that they are still regenerate, overcomes the world. Now, it looks at first glance as if that is saying that the regenerate person overcomes the world. But we have seen in the past that John uses this perfect tense in several verses to indicate the kind of behavior that should be expected of the person who is a member of the royal family of God. He is not saying every born-again person is going to overcome the world. He has never indicated that. For example, in 1 John 2.29 we read, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. He is not saying that everyone who is regenerate always practices righteousness. He is saying that only though that you can practice righteousness only if you are born of him. You can't flip it to the opposite and say, uh, everyone who doesn't practice righteousness is not born of him. 
That's not true. He is saying that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him because you can't do righteousness unless first you've been regenerated. He is saying then that there are those, therefore the implication is those who are regenerate can produce righteousness. Only if you're regenerate can you produce righteousness. But not all who are regenerate will produce righteousness. The same thing is true when we get down to 1 John 3, 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, if that means that regeneration produces a a believer who cannot sin, then we're all in trouble. We studied that verse in context, and we saw that, that what John is saying is that only by being born of God and manifesting your regeneration nature can you not sin? And you manifest that regenerate nature by abiding in Christ. And when we abide in him, Jesus said in John 15, his seed abides in us. Or he, when we abide in him, he abides in us. And that's what it means. His seed abides in us. That is, that regenerate nature is being manifested in the believer. And when that is happening, he cannot sin. It's the same thing I pointed out that Paul says in Galatians 5.16 that those who are walking by the Spirit cannot, it's impossible for them to fulfill the lust of the flesh. In other words, when you're in fellowship, enjoying fellowship, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, you can't sin. You make a decision, perceptively, imperceptibly, but at some point you make a decision to stop consciously depending upon God. See, that walk by the Spirit and abiding in Christ is something you have to consciously, conscientiously do. You have to intend to do it. You can't just go into neutral and you're automatically going to walk by means of the Spirit. What happens is you go into neutral and you stop walking by the Spirit and then you're, when you're not walking by the Spirit, you start to sin. So Paul and John are saying the exact same thing, that the person who is in fellowship does not sin and cannot sin while he is in fellowship abiding in Christ. 1 John 4, 7 is another use of this perfect uh, tense form of ganao, that uh, let, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. But this doesn't mean that everyone who is born of God loves, because he just gets through challenging his readers to love other believers. And the point he makes earlier in 1 John 2 is that there are believers who are walking in darkness and they're not loving their brother. So the point that I'm making here, before we get too caught up in 1 John 5, we have to understand in 5.4 that when he says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, he is saying that to overcome the world, you have to first be regenerate. And if you're regenerate, you have the potential of overcoming the world, but you may not overcome the world. Now, that's there's the rub. There's the real interpretive problem in this verse, because there are those who say that overcoming is what every believer does, and he does it by virtue of the fact that he trusts Christ as Savior. Uh, he believes Jesus is the Son of God, verse 5. And the point that I keep making is that this is the very issue, the very reason John writes this epistle to believers is so that they will continue to believe 
that Jesus is the Son of God, so that they will continue to believe in the undiminished deity and true humanity of Jesus Christ. Because it is in his hypostatic union that Jesus lays the the precedence, lays the pattern for the spiritual life of the church age. If you go back and you disrupt and, and switch or, or destroy either his deity or his humanity, if you start messing with the hypostatic union and get it out of sync and out of proportion, then that damages the whole concept of the spiritual life that is pioneered by Jesus Christ at the first advent. And that's what, why this is so important, is that First John is dealing with uh, the spiritual life after salvation, not what you have to believe in order to be saved. And that's evident from the fact that his vocabulary throughout this entire epistle is dependent on the vocabulary that Jesus used in first in, in the in the gospel in John 13 through 17 where Jesus is teaching the disciples about the spiritual life of the church age so the issue here is spiritual life so it's not believing that Jesus is the son of God so you can be saved but it is continuing to believe correct doctrine about the person of Jesus Christ as a foundation for your spiritual growth. So he says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Now, what does he mean by this? If it is the normal operating method for every believer to overcome the world, which is the contention of lordship salvation, if you're a true believer, you'll overcome the world, then we have a problem. And in order to understand the problem, I want you to go back with me to a passage on the world in 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, the context is that John has been addressing the three levels of spiritual growth in the congregation. In verse 18, or excuse me, in verse 12 he says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. So he's addressing three stages of spiritual growth, spiritual infants, little children, the spiritually mature, the fathers, and the spiritual adolescents, the young men. Then in verse 14 he says, I've written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. They have reached that stage where they know God. Remember, I made the point, and we'll make it again this morning, that knowing God is not equivalent to becoming saved. In John 14:9, Jesus said to Philip, Philip's a believer, he says, How long have I been here, Philip, and you still have not come to know me? See, you can be saved and not know God. You can be saved and not know Jesus. So he writes to the fathers and says, You have known him. In other words, by the time they reach spiritual maturity, you come to know God, and knowing God is evidenced by loving him, and they're both evidenced by keeping his commandments. So the fathers have reached spiritual adulthood. Then he says in the second half of verse 14, I have written to you young men because you are strong, the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. The overcoming the wicked one, I said at the, at the beginning, has to do with getting past, getting past that spiritual infancy, infancy, infancy when Satan is tempting the new believer to disregard doctrine. 
It's not important. Don't give yourself to the study of the Word. You're saved. Don't worry about it. Because as a believer grows and advances in the spiritual life, he becomes a greater and greater testimony against Satan in the angelic conflict. So Satan's assault pattern for the young believer is to distract him from the Word. So in that sense, he you have overcome the wicked one. And then he says, still addressing young men in verse 15. The address to young men starts in 14b and goes through 17. And they've overcome the wicked one, but not the world. See, they've overcome Satan, but they haven't overcome the world. Verse 15, do not love the world. That's the point of contention in spiritual adolescence. Spiritual infancy, it's are you going to make doctrine a priority? In spiritual adolescence, the issue is, are you going to live today in light of eternity? Are you going to live today on the basis of whatever makes you happy today? So John says, don't love the world. Don't get caught up in the thinking of the cosmic system or the things in the cosmic system. If anyone loves the cosmic system, the love of the Father is not in him. Notice, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, that is a genitive case. Father is in the genitive case, and here it is an objective genitive. That means you have a noun love, which describes an action. Faith is also a noun of action. There are various nouns, a collection of nouns that describe actions. And so those nouns are called nouns of action. When they're followed by a genitive, they can refer to either the love for the Father or the love from the Father. If it is a love for the Father, then the Father is the object of the noun of action. That's called an objective genitive. If the Father, if it's the Father's love or the love comes from the Father, the Father is the one who's doing the love, the subject who's performing the loving, then that's called a subjective genitive. This is an objective genitive. It is love for the Father. And John says if anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. Over in uh, James chapter 4, we're told that if you love the world, you are an enemy of God. So a believer obviously can still love the world, and he hasn't reached a point where he is loving the Father. Now in verse 16 we read, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So loving the world is living, you're still at a stage of spiritual immaturity, where you're having major problems with the, your sin nature, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. You're still spending a lot of time in carnality and not that much time uh, filled with the Spirit or walking by the Spirit because your priorities and your values are still being set by the cosmic system. And Paul reminds, I mean, excuse me, John reminds them then in verse 17, and the world, the cosmic system, is passing away and also its lust. In other words, this is temporary. Don't put your values, don't put your priorities on that which is temporary, but on that which is eternal. The one who does the will of God abides forever. This doesn't mean you'll have eternal life, but that you will be in a status of abiding in Christ uh, and, a, and having a close, closer fellowship with Christ in eternity. Now let's look at another couple of verses in order to understand the concept of loving God. See, you either love the world or you love God, one or the other. When you're in carnality, you're loving the world. 
When you're filled with the Spirit abiding in Christ, that's when you're demonstrating love for God. And love for God is demonstrated, as I've said again and again and again, by doing what God says. You love God, you love His Word, and you do His Word. This is the point that John makes in 1 John 2, 3 through 5. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. So how do you know if you've come to know God? You keep His commandments. Infant believers don't know God because they don't know His commandments yet and they don't keep His commandments. Only as you advance in your understanding of the Word do you come to know what those commandments are. You know His Word and you apply those principles and you obey His Word. And that indicates that you know God. You have come to know Him. Remember, knowing Him doesn't mean trusting Christ as Savior. This is what comes after salvation. 1 John 2, 4, the one who says, I have come to know him. So here we have a case in point. One believer claims, I've come to know God. I've gotten to a point of spiritual maturity and does not keep his commandments. is a liar. The truth is not in him. He claims to know Christ. He claims to know God, but he doesn't keep his commandments. He's a liar. The truth is not in him. It's not that he's not saved. The truth isn't in him. Doctrine isn't in him. He's not operating on the word of God. And if you're not operating on the word of God, you're not what? You're not keeping his commandments. And then verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, notice how it shifted. In verse 3, it's by, how, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. And in verse 5, it's, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been perfected. See, in verse verse 3, you keep his commandments shows you know him. But by verse 5, keeping his commandments completes or matures your love for God. So love for God, then, is equivalent to keep, to knowing him. You have to know someone to love them. You have to know God to love him. The only way you can know God is to know his word. When you know his word, that demonstrates that you love his word. When you love his word, you keep his word. It's all connected. And by this we know that we are in him. And that refers to the fact that by this, by the fact that we keep his word, we know that we are in him, and that is having fellowship with him, enjoying fellowship with him, abiding with him. Now, all of that is background for understanding understanding what is going on in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. Remember, the immature and carnal believer still loves the world and the things in the world. He hasn't yet had victory over the world. He hasn't overcome the world. He's still struggling with the cosmic system. That's the context of 1 John 2. Uh, 1 John uh, 2, uh, 4 through 4 through 6, or excuse me, 3 through 5, indicates that knowing him and loving him come after salvation. Now let's go back to our passage in 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. See, if overcoming the world is automatic with salvation... Then 1 John 2, 15 and following is unnecessary. You don't need to tell them to overcome the world because if they're a true believer according to Lordship Salvation, they're automatically going to overcome the world. But what John warns them about in 1 John 2 is that you, you, you need to overcome the world. You can still not know God. You can be a believer and not love God and disobey His Word. You have to advance 
by applying his word. So he says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. That is when the regenerate nature is fully manifesting itself and the member of the royal family of God is living like he's a member of the royal family God. Uh, royal family of God. Now, for, he goes on to say in, four, in verse 4, the second half of verse 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, this is not faith at salvation. This is the post-salvation faith, the faith rest drill. It is trusting in the promises and the provisions of God. It is learning about and implementing all of the assets that God gave us at the instant of salvation. It is learning those promises and mixing our faith with promises. You can't execute the faith rest drill if you don't have promises memorized and in your soul. You can't just sort of sit out there and go, well, God, I know somewhere in your word you say something about this, and uh, so I'm going to trust that. God's going to say, you don't care enough to know my word? Remember, the, the psalmist sa- says that he hides his word in our heart. And that's what we should be doing is memorizing Scripture and committing these promises to our memory so that we can use them at, at, at the right time. Otherwise, it's like going out on the battlefield and you don't have any bullets in your, in your magazine and so you're going to go out there and, and not have any ammo and want to rely on somebody else's ammo. Well, they need their own ammo. Don't rely on other people. Memorize your own scripture. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, our trust in the promises and provision of God. Verse 5, And who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus is undiminished deity. That means that everything that Jesus did in his life had value. He taught us, he modeled for us the perfect spiritual life. He is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so that emphasis on Christology, on the deity of Christ, is necessary as a, as a foundation for understanding the spiritual life. So even though it looks somewhat confusing that the one who overcomes the world is the believer, that's not what it is saying. If you understand what John has already said about overcoming and what John has already said about the world, that that is not what takes place at salvation. Now that brings us to the next verse, verse 6, where we enter into a new section in the epistle that goes down through uh, verse 13, and the key word in this section is the word testimony or witness, and I think it's it's even record in, in the New American Standard, but it comes from the Greek verb martyreo, martyreo, and martyreo looks like this. It's where we get our English word martyr. Martyreo, M-A-R-T-U-R-E-O. And martyreo was a legal term, which means to testify, to give a testimony, to bear witness, and to make an official record of something. Now, remember, this was first introduced when we studied 1 John 1, 2 
two years ago. It's been that long. Two years in First John, so I imagine you don't remember it. In First John 1, 2, John said, The life was manifested, and we have seen it, that is the apostles, and bear witness. That's the term. They are bearing witness. This is an official legal term. We are legal witnesses to the reality of the hypostatic union during the first advent. We bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So now in verses 6 through 13, he is going to return to this theme of the witness, this testimony, and he is going to expand upon that in this conclusion to 1 John. So we have to look at verse 6. This is the one. See, this is who he's testifying about, the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Now, when we get into these next three verses, there are some technical issues we have to uh, we have to deal with in order to make sure, number one, that we properly interpret the Scripture. But number two, we have one of those difficult passages where we have to figure out just what the Scripture is and what the Scripture says. This verse is seems somewhat enigmatic to many when he uses the phrase, by water and the blood. And there are three views that are suggested for interpreting this phrase, the water and the blood. The first view, which has little support, none from the text, is the idea that water and blood uh, represent the two, uh, the, the two ordinances in the church, water baptism and communion. The, the blood representing the cup that's taken in the communion service. Well, that is uh, fine because water, water and the blood talks about, as the ordinances is in reference to the church, doesn't have anything to do with Jesus Christ, so that's not a very good interpretation. The second view that is suggested is that water and the blood is a reference to what came out of Jesus' side. John referenced the fact that when Jesus died on the cross physically, after he had died physically, the centurion came along and uh, stuck the uh, spear in his side to make sure he was dead, and outflowed, John says, blood and water. The word order is different. Uh, blood and water, and that indicates that, that he was already dead when that happened, because uh, what happens in crucifixion is that as the, the body is slumped over, and because of the way the diaphragm presses up against the, the, the rib cage and the lungs, that that it perform it forms sort of a sack on the inside, and the water in the and the the blood in the heart separates out into lymph or serum and uh, and red hemoglobin. So it has a separation into that which is red and that which is is liquid, like like the uh, lymph that you get that that appears in a, in a in a water blister on your finger on your hand. And so when that spear went up and pierced the diaphragm, it released that liquid that had collected there, and so it looked like blood and water coming out. You had clear liquid and red liquid that came out that had separated. So that indicates Jesus was dead. That's a clear indication he was already dead physically by the time that that happened. And in that case, uh, this passage would simply be, be talking about the death of Christ. But that's not what seems to be talked here, taught, taught here. The main idea is the entirety of the ministry of Jesus Christ when he is teaching by word and deed about not only salvation, but about the spiritual life. Uh, 
Water, therefore, refers to the inauguration of Christ's earthly ministry. And the blood references the final episode in his life, and that is the death on the cross. But it goes beyond that. Now, you look up in any... Any study Bible that you're using out there probably makes reference to the fact that that blood and water refer water and blood refers to the beginning of Christ's ministry when he is when it's inaugurated by the baptism of John the Baptist and the blood references his death on the crucifixion but it goes beyond that. You see the key idea in these verses is testimony, the witness. And see you have two witnesses of God in relationship to who Jesus Christ is as the eternal Son of God, the hypostatic union, that he is undiminished deity united with true humanity. The first witness came at the baptism. When John the Baptist immersed Jesus in the water, you heard the Father speak from heaven, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And you saw the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descend on Jesus' head. So there was an objective witness. If you had been there with your Sony digital video recorder, you could have recorded all of that, and you could have come back, and you could have put it into some sort of a, an MP3 format or some, some uh, video format and sent it out all over the inter- Internet, and everybody in the world could physically see and hear objectively the words of God the Father speaking in terms of validating who Jesus of Nazareth was. Now, the second great validation and testimony as to who Jesus was came not on the crucifixion per se, but three days later when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And that he is validated, and his victory over physical death is the great validation of God's approval of Jesus Christ, indication that he conquered death and that he is God. So there are these two great evidences in the life of Christ as to who he is. Number one is at the inauguration when he's baptized by John the Baptist, and number two, is at the end of his life the resurrection that comes after the crucifixion. So water in the blood refers to the beginning and the end of his life. In other words, the totality of his life as well indicated that he it was undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person forever. And that's the very issue in this epistle is the person of Jesus Christ and his identity, that he, through these evidences, demonstrated himself to be the Messiah and the one who provided not only salvation, but set the precedence for the spiritual life of this uh, church age. So verse 6 says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. See, Serenthus, who was a gr- one of the early Gnostics, and who was a great enemy of uh of Christianity also taught that Jesus didn't actually die. We studied this under the principle of the docetics. The docetics, the term comes from the Greek word dokeo, meaning to seem or to appear, taught that Jesus didn't actually become a physical man and that he didn't actually go to the cross uh, because obviously if he had been, according to their view, if the immaterial had been united with matter, matter is inherently evil, so that would have made uh, the Jesus spirit evil and sinful. And so he, the Jesus spirit left the man before he went to the cross. And that, of course, was a great heresy and has tremendously uh, damaging consequences for, for theology and for the spiritual life. 
So when when uh, John references this, he says, not just by water, but the water and blood. It's both the inauguration and the crucifixion. He was physically crucified on the cross. And then he says, and not only this, it is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. So how does the Holy Spirit witness? He does it through the ongoing revelation of his word to the apostles. And that was the role of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will send another comforter who is the Spirit of truth. And the truth, there's a genitive in the Greek, and that qualifies the role or ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is the Holy Spirit who will communicate truth. That is his realm of operation. He is the one who reveals doctrine, reveals scripture, and he is the one who is the agent of inspiration. And then in verse 7, we read, For there are three that bear witness. Now, I don't know how it's annotated in your Bible, but in some Bibles it reads, For there are three that bear witness, and then it just goes on into verse 8, The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. And if you're using a King James Version or a New King James Version, then you will see the verses as I have them up on the, up on the screen. First John 5, 7, as it's found in the NIV, New American Standard, and most modern translations, just reads, For there are three that testify, and then it goes to the second half of verse 8. But if you're using King James or New King James, you'll have the words in your Bible that are underlined up on the screen. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth. That phraseology is found only in your King James and New King James Version. And so this brings up a very uh, very interesting subject that uh, I, I haven't really gotten into up to this point. But this is as great a point as any in order to uh, uh, discuss this right now. And that is the issue of the King James Version debate. Some of you may not be aware of this. I know some of you have asked me questions, and we've had some folks visit the church uh, here a couple of times over the last year or so, who apparently there is a congregation somewhere around here that is a King James-only church. And King James-only people are folks that believe that the King James Version is inerrant that the King James Version is the only version that should be used, and that all of these modern translations, the New American Standard, the NIV, um, and all the other modern translations are actually heretical, and they're all wrong, and if you use them, you'll probably never learn any truth, because only the King James Version, not only was the Greek text inspired, but the King James translators were inspired, and so the King James Version is the only authorized version that should be used. And I'll tell you how how odd this gets sometimes. First time I really ran across this, uh, I was talking with Jim Myers over in Ukraine, and some of some King James only advocates came over there, and they couldn't believe that they would be using a, a or translating the Bible into Russian because the only authorized translation is the King James only. In other words, when you go speak to Russians or to Germans or to 
to uh, any Indians or anywhere else in the world, you can only teach them from the King James English version. Now, as absurd as that may sound to you, there is some. Uh, there are various things that they they uh, they argue for, and so we have to ask the question: Is there a legitimate stand for saying that the King James? is the only authorized version and that we should only use it. And one place that you see this difference is that in most of the modern versions, you do not have this, these, these two verses. You don't have the ending in Mark that, that is in the King James Version. And there are some other verses that are in the King James Version that are not in many modern translations. So the question is, what causes this? Uh, do we have the? Is it okay to use a New American Standard? That are they leaving some of the Bible out? Have they have they ignored some of the original revelation of God? I mean, if so, that's a serious claim. Well, let's look at at some of the evidence and history of the King James Version. First of all, the King James Version and the New King James Version are based on a collection of Greek manuscripts called the Textus Receptus. That's the Latin for received text. The Textus Receptus, abbreviated TR. That's not Teddy Roosevelt. That's the Textus Receptus. Now, in the Textus Receptus, in that, and, and furthermore, I'm getting ahead of myself. The Textus Receptus contains the second half of verse 7 and the first half of verse 8. Those are included in the Textus Receptus. Now, King James-only advocates claim that the modern versions are deliberately less Trinitarian. See, that's a great verse to support the Trinity. The Father, the Word, the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. That's a great verse to support the Trinity. So King James-only advocates claim that modern versions are deliberately less Trinitarian than classic translations such as the King James Version. Now, I want you to remember, this is the question here, the issue here is not an issue of the inspiration of the text. The issue has to do with the transmission and the copying of the text. Not its origination, but what happens is it's transmitted and copied from generation to generation. And to understand that, we have to understand a little bit about the history of the Textus Receptus. The second point is that the Textus Receptus, the TR, refers to the 1633 version of the Greek text published by Erasmus. It refers to the 1633 edition, and he published the first edition in 1516. Erasmus was a Roman Catholic priest and a humanist who desired to reform the Roman Catholic Church at the same time of Martin Luther and the early Reformers. However, he was not a believer, and he merely wanted a moral reformation of the church, not a theological reformation of the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, later on, he had a very famous clash and series of debates with Martin Luther, who was the instigator of the Protestant Reformation. It was Martin Luther who started the Lutheran Church when he was kicked out of the Roman Catholic Church and declared a, a heretic. 
Martin Luther wrote a response to Erasmus called The Bondage of the Will, which is one of the most famous documents that has ever been, uh, our most famous books ever published. But so Erasmus was not necessarily a, a great believer, but he was a great linguist and a great student of manuscripts and ancient texts. But Erasmus ran into the same problem a lot of writers run into, and that is he had a publisher who was pressuring him to, to get the, get the manuscript in so that I can publish. I remember when Tommy Ice and I first wrote, um, the, our book on spiritual warfare, we had lunch with the publishers the 1st of March and they wanted a final manuscript the 1st of August and we didn't have a word on the page. So we had six months to get that out and consequently there were a number of errors in the text that I corrected when we came out with this last edition. But that's what happened. The same thing happened with Erasmus is that he had to come up with that Greek New Testament in seven months. Now, he didn't have a computer, and he didn't have a typewriter, and he had to do it the old-fashioned way, writing on, uh, on, on leather with a quill pen. So things were, were quite different. He based his Greek New Testament on only seven manuscripts that were available to him at the time. So the TR is based on seven Greek manuscripts. That's it. Only seven Greek manuscripts. And it has been described by scholars as being thrown together rather than edited. Of the seven manuscripts, not one of them contained the entirety of the New Testament. Furthermore, all of these manuscripts dated from between the 11th century and the 15th century. So they have a date from roughly about 1050 A.D. up to about uh, 1480 A.D. That's a thousand years after the New Testament was written. So these are very late manuscripts, and a lot of errors had crept into those manuscripts. Furthermore, point number three, scholars note that by comparing these seven manuscripts with Erasmus' final edition, and we have we have copies of that, and the one the printer published, you can make several inferences. First of all, Erasmus primarily used two manuscripts and compared the others with these. So he had two of the manuscripts in front of him. He compared the other five to those two, and he wrote in his changes on, on those two primary manuscripts that he used, wrote in his corrections on that. The manuscripts themselves, though, of these seven manuscripts, they differed as many as six to ten times per chapter. Changes in spelling, changes in word order, word left out, ending change, something like that. There were as many as six to ten differences among these manuscripts per chapter. Remember, these were old manuscripts, and a lot of errors had crept in. They are not considered even today some of the better manuscripts. Furthermore, the printer, the publisher, didn't accept all of Erasmus's corrections. He thought, here's the scholar, the great scholar Erasmus was known all over Europe, and the publisher didn't like some of the decisions and corrections he accepted, so the publisher went in and added some of his own. Now, that's just not done. So the printer added some of his own revisions, and the result is that a number of major errors entered into that Greek text that Erasmus edited. In fact, Many words entered in that aren't found in any Greek manuscripts anywhere. So we don't even know what they mean or where they came from. 
Now, point number four, one bad example of this comes from the last six verses of Revelation. None of the manuscripts that Erasmus used contained those last six verses in Revelation. So the only thing he could do to come up with the last six verses was to go to the Latin Bible. The, remember, that was a, the Latin Vulgate was translated by Jerome in the third century. And so he went to the Latin Bible and back translated from the Latin. As a result of that, there are at least 20 errors in the Textus Receptus in the last six verses that have no support in any Greek manuscripts, and they're still in the Textus Receptus today. Twenty errors in those last six verses that aren't found in any Greek manuscript anywhere, but they're still in the Textus Receptus today. Furthermore, another example, in Acts 9-6, Erasmus added the words, and he trembled, and he trembled, and was astonished, and said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him. He added those words to Acts 9-6, and these words came from the Latin Vulgate, but they're not found in any Greek manuscript anywhere. He just translated it from the, the Latin Vulgate. But the most egregious problem, the most incredible problem, this is point number five. Point number four was two bad examples, the last six verses of Revelation and Acts 9-6. Point number five, the worst problem is what's known as the comma Johannium. The comma Johannium. Let me write that up for you. The word comma comes from the Greek, which means a sentence or a phrase. Comma Johannium. Or the Johannine comma, the Johannine sentence here. And that is that you have the last part of verse uh, 7 and the first part of verse 8 aren't included in any, or in, in any of the important Greek manuscripts. Point number 6. The comma Johannium, these verses, appear in only eight Greek manuscripts none of which can be dated earlier than the 10th century. They only appear in eight Greek manuscripts and none any earlier than 8th century. Furthermore, it's clear from the way it is, the word order is in the Greek that it was translated from the Latin and not from the Greek. But in four of these eight manuscripts, it's not in the text. It's in a margin as a, as a marginal note, as an explanation of what is in the text. So what would happen sometimes, and, and you, you do this, you sit there with your Bible and you write a note out in the margin. Well, if somebody came along a hundred years later and they were making a copy of your Bible, because that was the only copy they had, then what they would do is they would write in as part of the Bible your note. And that's what would happen. A, a, a scribe would make a note in the margin, and then the next scribe would come along and include that note or that word sometimes into the main manuscript, and it would find its way in as part of the text. So that's what has happened. It only appeared in eight manuscripts, four of which have it only in a marginal reference as, a, as an explanation, perhaps, of the text. Now, one thing for sure, if the text were, if these verses were genuine, because they're such a clear statement of the Trinity, if those texts were genuine, they would have been cited and referred to in the great debates defining the Trinity that occurred at the Council of Nicaea in 325 and the Council of Chalcedon, which occurred in 451. 
But see, they, no scholar, no early church father ever quotes, ever cites these verses. They don't appear in anything till after the great Trinitarian controversies of the 4th and 5th centuries. So how did it get here? Well, it got here, point number seven, because Erasmus was bullied into putting it into the Bible. When uh, Erasmus first published his edition, his Greek text in 1516, there was an English scholar by the name of Lee. His first name was uh, initial E. Lee, and he constantly criticized Erasmus. He was one of his great opponents. And after several years of being criticized by Lee, Erasmus wrote the following reply. He said, if a single manuscript had come into my hands in which stood what we read, then I, what we read, that is, in the Latin Vulgate, the, this, this, the, the questionable sentence here, if a single manuscript had come into my hand that, that had those verses, I would have used it to fill in what was missing in the other manuscripts I had. But because that did not happen, I have taken the only course permissible and I've left it out. Later, uh, Lee con- continued to badger Erasmus that he was negligent and that uh, he would uh, uh, j- just had left it out. And so finally Erasmus said, well, if you can come up with a single manuscript that shows this, then I'll put it into my Greek New Testament. So Lee finally produced a, 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 uh, a manuscript that possessed that particular quotation and so Erasmus included the extra text in his third edition of his New Testament. But in later editions, he took it out. But afterward, after by the 1600s, those additional words were then reinserted by later editors and became part of the Textus Receptus. So that shows how inadvertently an extra verse or two got inserted into the New Testament, but it's in the Textus Receptus, and it's in every King James version. So, if King James version is right, then they're and is always right, then they're basing their. I mean, the King James only people are basing their view on a, a text that has major errors. So, point number eight, we ask the question: Is the Johannine comma scripture? No, the evidence seems to suggest it is not. Is it true? Yes. Is it sound theology? Yes. But it is not attested in any of the manuscripts that have any serious reliability. It was forced into the text by the bullying maneuvers of the Roman Catholic Church as represented by the scholar E. Lee. Now, point number nine, this is one of only numerous examples of problems with the text underlying the King James Version. In fact, hundreds of additions and revisions were made to the King James Version between 1611 and 1881, or excuse me, 1781. So the next time you talk to somebody and they say, well, we're going to rely on the King James only, ask them which King James. The King James edition of 1611, which had over 8,000 notes in the margin with alternate readings and translation suggestions, and in that edition, some of those suggestions are exactly the translations that, followed, that are followed in some modern translations. The King James Version had so many errors, though, that it was revised in 1612, 1613, 1616, 1629, and 16. 16-
date. In fact, by 1659, a tract was written by William Kilburn called Dangerous Errors in several late printed Bibles to the great scandal and corruption of sound and true religion, and he claimed that 20,000 different errors had crept into six different editions of the King James Version. Most modern King James Versions are based on Benjamin Blaney's edition in 1769, which differs from the 1611 translation by over 75,000 details. Which King James only are we talking about, folks? The original King James also contained the Apocrypha, that is, the disputed books that that uh, the Roman Catholic Bible accepts, but Protestants do not accept. Roman Catholics ex- did not accept them as Scripture until the Council of Trent in the mid-1500s. Uh, so they are not part of the uh, original, and they take place on the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The King, original King James contained the Apocrypha. It was not first excluded until 1629, and it was not generally omitted from a King James Bible until the 19th century. Furthermore, there have been numerous changes in the King James Version. For example, originally, Deuteronomy 26.1 read, The Lord, and now it reads, The Lord thy God. Jeremiah 49.1 originally read, Inherit God, and it was changed to Inherit Gad. There's a little difference between God and Gad. Uh, Mark 10.18 originally read, There is no man good but one. Now it reads, There is none good but one. 1 Corinthians 4.9 originally read approved unto death, and now it reads appointed unto death. Point number 10, there are over 1,838 differences between the TR. Now this gets to another, doc, or another document. The TR is a Texas Receptus, and then another Greek version, one that I tend to prefer, but not always, is called the majority text. The Textus Receptus, remember, was based on ten, on seven manuscripts, none older than the 10th century, whereas the majority text is based on over 4,000 manuscripts, and the oldest goes back to the 4th century A.D. The TR represents what's called the Byzantine text type, which is the text type of the majority text, but the, there are... 1,838 differences between the TR and the majority text. So the majority text is a superior text and a superior basis for translation, and the majority text does not include any of these verses uh, in it. Does not include the Johannine comma, does not include the problems at the end of Revelation, doesn't include the uh, extra verses in Acts. So the majority text is a much sounder uh, document. Well, that's just a little side note to answer the question on the King James only issue. Is the King James a good translation for its time and place? It's pretty good, but there are problems with it. Uh, but I think in many ways, in some ways, the reason I prefer the New King James Version is that the TR, the Textus Receptus, is closer to the majority text than the eclectic texts that lie behind the translations of New American Standard and the um, and the NIV. 
What does that mean for you as to what Bible you choose? I still recommend the New American Standard. I don't, I think that, uh, all of these disputed readings that are of any significance are all indicated in the margin or they're in the text, just put in parentheses. So it's not an issue. It's not something to get wrapped around the axle about. It's not something like you're going to say, oh, I'm not, I'm missing part of the Bible. That's not true. But I think that if you rely exclusively on the King James Version and believe that somehow it is it is authorized by God and that uh, if you believe that, that that is the only version that you can legitimately understand the Word of God by, then you are historically uh, inept, you are historically ignorant, and you don't understand the doctrine of inspiration. Only the original autographs in the Greek and Hebrew were inspired by God. All translations have errors because of the nature of translation. Uh, theology often enters in as do other problems. So we will skip that section from uh, the second half of seven down to the end of eight. So that reads now, For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. The Old Testament law said that you need to confirm anything by at least two witnesses. So the Holy Spirit testified as to who Jesus Christ was through the revelation of his, the, the word to the apostles. The water and the blood give evidence as to who Jesus was from the testimony of God the Father at the baptism and his resurrection after the crucifixion. And these three all agree as one that Jesus is undiminished deity and true humanity. That is a basis for salvation. If Jesus Christ is not fully God and fully man, there is no salvation. He went to the cross in order to pay the penalty for our sins as a man. In his humanity, he bore in his body on the cross the penalty for all of our sins. During that time, he was separated judicially from God the Father paid for every single sin in human history, that by faith alone, in Christ alone, we can have salvation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you once again for this opportunity to study your word. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Salvation is not based on works, on moral reformation, on church attendance, on ritual, or any other human factor. It is based solely and exclusively on faith in the Savior who is undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person forever. You can have eternal life simply by believing Christ died on the cross for your sins. At the instant that you believe that, God the Father knows what you believe in his omniscience. And at that instant, you are regenerate and you are justified and you can never lose that salvation. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied today, that we might be challenged by them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.